Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. I'm so glad you've joined me today for episode six of season two. Um, Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with Amanda Cabot. She is a best-selling author of inspirational historical fiction. Her most recent book, Dreams Rekindled, released on Tuesday of this week, March 2nd. So it's just out and you can grab a copy hot off the presses. It's the second in Amanda's Mesquite Springs series. So it's set in Texas Hill Country, which is a favorite setting of Amanda's. We talk about that, about her love for Texas, and about the importance of importance of newspapers during that time period. It was set right before the Civil War. Um, And also kind of what Texas was like then and the role of women at that time. And then we get into, of course, because I always like to know the background behind um, how this author got published. So we talk about Amanda's career. So I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Amanda Cabot. Amanda, I'm so glad you're joining me on the show today. Thanks for inviting me, Allison. It's a real pleasure to be here. You have a new novel, Dreams Rekindled, releasing on March 2nd. Can you tell us about this book? Well, it's the second in the Mesquite Springs trilogy, and it's actually one of my favorite books because it deals with two people who are trying to overcome things that have happened in their past. And I think all of us have things in our past that haunt us to some extent and that prevent us from going forward the way we might want to, and we need to get over them. So that's what happens with Dorothy and Brandon. And of course, a lot of other things happen in the middle of the story, but it is basically a story about finding love, finding healing, and putting the past behind you. Okay, sounds good. Um, So what inspired you to write this series and this novel in particular? Uh, Well, most of my books are historical fiction, although I did do a contemporary series, and those were very well received. But I have to tell you that when I went back to writing in the 19th century, it felt like coming home. Um, Mm. I have a friend who tells me I was born in the wrong century. We won't discuss (laughs) that. But uh, um, I love writing about the 19th century. And I'm also very, very fond of the Texas Hill Country. So that is where the majority of my books are set. Okay. In terms of the actual inspiration for this book, it was a number of things. The hero is a newspaper editor. And that's something that I had considered very briefly as a career for myself. I knew I wanted to be a writer and what kind of a writer changed, sometimes Mm. based on the day. But it was fun to create a hero who owns a newspaper, who runs a newspaper. And in that era, a lot of these were literally one-man shows with the emphasis on man So I had him, and then my heroine is a woman who 
has been inspired by Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which Mm. is arguably the most influential book from the 19th century. But think about this. She lives in Texas, which is a slave-owning state. And Uncle Tom's Cabin was banned there as well as in most of the southern states. So she has read it and she sees how Harriet Beecher Stowe's book has changed people, has made them think differently. And so she wants to be a writer. She wants to do the same things that Harriet Beecher Stowe does. She wants to change people's lives. And Mm -hmm. then she meets our hero. Wow, neat. So you really wanted to create a newspaper man. Can you talk a little bit about how important newspapers were during the 19th century or what what role they played? Um, They were extremely important, uh, particularly in smaller towns. Mm. If you're talking about big cities on the East Coast or even on the West Coast, there were other forms of reading. But in many places, smaller towns, smaller cities, newspapers were the only form of reading that people had other than the Bible. Wow. And that's why in a lot of small town papers, you will find, in addition to news, which they got uh, through Telegraph or from other like Eastern newspapers, In addition to news, you'll find things like stories, recipes, and of course, the personals column told what the people in town were doing. But when you think about it as being one of the few sources of reading material, you realize just how important and how influential a newspaper can be. Right. Um, So how did women's roles at that time play into the plot of your novel? You mentioned that it was a one-man show, the newspaper, but um, I, I felt like that was kind of a, a hint at something. <laughs> yeah. Um, women in the 19th century didn't have a lot of professions that were open to them. Mm. You could be a teacher, but in many communities, you had to stop teaching. I mean, your contract said you could not marry. So that was one thing you could do. Nursing became a little more acceptable for women after the Civil War and Clara Barton, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't considered altogether respectable. So women really didn't have a lot of choices. If you wanted to work before you were married, um, you could do as the heroine of the first book in this series, Out of the Embers, does, and open a restaurant. You could be a dressmaker. You could be a teacher. And that was kind of it. Um, So here we have Dorothy, my heroine, who wants to be a novelist. And, you know, that's something she could do, possibly. But, you know, women in that era frequently used men's names. I mean, look at the Bronte sisters. They gave themselves men's names when they first tried to be published. Right. So very limited, limited things that a woman could do outside of the home. Right. So your heroine, Dorothy, um, the protagonist, she wants to be a novelist. Does she have 
I mean, she looks at Harriet Beecher Stowe as her idol, but was did she have feelings um, that slavery was wrong, or was she uh, sympathetic with Texas's laws? Oh, well, what she. <laughs> Actually, Um, clarify, because I know that Texas was in the South, but I, even though I've studied, because I wrote a book set before the Civil War, right before the Civil War, but I really, it was not set anywhere near Texas. So I really haven't studied exactly what Texas, how they're, how they worked, because I feel like they've always been a little bit of their own entity. And that was true even then. Um, Right. Texas is such a huge state that it depended on what part of the state you were in. If you were in the east near the Gulf of Mexico, that mm-hmm. is prime, or was at that time, prime cotton growing. Mm-hmm. So plantations, slaves, yes, you had that. My books are set in the hill country, and slavery was not common there. And in fact, okay. I do not um, have any slaves in my books, uh, even though I know that Yes, realistically, there could have been some. That is a subject I don't want to treat. Um, It's not part of our history that I want to in any way glorify. So we have Dorothy, who wants to be another Harriet Beecher Stowe, not necessarily to talk about slavery, but she's looking for a subject that is equally important something that she can say to change people's lives. And here's her problem. She can't come up with one. Mm. She has this dream of being a writer, and she thinks she wants to be a novelist. But when she can't find the theme, what's she going to do? And that's when Brandon comes into the picture, because he is doing a newspaper. And so she's able to help him. It's not the kind of writing she thought she wanted to do, but she finds it's what she's very good at. So she can be a writer and maybe not the way she dreamt, but in her own way, she can change people's lives. Yeah. Sometimes our, our ex- what we expect for ourselves or what we dream for ourselves our actual life takes a different path than we expect. Well, that is actually uh, one of the interesting things, I think, in most people's lives. You know, you and, and it's what we can do for our characters when we write them. You, you set up a character who says, this is my goal, mm-hmm. and then finds out at the end that it wasn't really. I mean, what you thought was your goal wasn't. And I write Christian fiction, so I am always interested in the hand of God and what that does, right. what he can, what he does for us, um, bringing, showing how his ways are better than ours. He knows what mm-hmm. we don't know, and ultimately brings us what we truly need, not necessarily what we thought we needed or wanted. Right. Mm, that's good. So what are what are you hoping readers will take away from this book? Is that part of it? The- <laughs> yeah. Well, the healing power of love. Um, mm. The stories that I write all seem to have a single theme. I mean, they're very different stories. But when you cut to the chase, 
what you find is that I write about the healing power of love, Mm. the love between a man and a woman, and God's love for us, and how that changes us. So I think, I hope that readers will see that. I hope they'll also be entertained by the story of Brandon and Dorothy, the obstacles that they have to overcome, because we have some some pretty awful things that are happening in this formerly sleepy town of Mesquite Springs. Hmm. We have new characters coming to town who have their own agendas, and they're not necessarily, in fact, they are definitely not the same agendas that either Dorothy or Brandon has. So a lot of stuff is happening. Um, there's some suspense. As I said, there's some bad guys. Um, but I'm hoping that readers will be entertained, that when they finish the book, they'll have smiles on their faces, and that they'll be eager to come back to Mesquite Springs for the third book. Yeah. Um, so you said some not-so-good things are happening in this this sleepy town, the normally sleepy town. So in the first book, do you always have an element of suspense in your books, or is that something a little different in this one? Yes, I do. <laughs> and okay. um, readers have come to expect that from me. Yeah. The first book definitely had a mystery in it. Um, we have the heroine it has been living at an orphanage for the past 10 years, ever since her parents were killed. She returns to the orphanage and discovers that it's been burned and realizes that this was not an accident. This was deliberate. And the person who killed her parents is determined to kill her as well. Hmm. So she, and she's with a very young orphan, she flees. I mean, she's certainly not going to stay around there thinking that she's going to be killed. So she takes this young orphan with her and they move, they go west to the hill country. They wind up in Mesquite Springs. But all the while, she's looking over her shoulder, wondering, will this person find her? Mm, Wow. So you've written a lot of series of books. Are they all trilogies? Uh, Yes, they are. So can your books be read individually, though, or do they work best when they're read in order? Oh, they can be read individually. There are several things that I, as an author and as a reader, hate. Um, I hate picking up book two in a series and feeling like I'm late to a party and that everybody else knows each other. And here I am the stranger. Right. So I don't, I don't do that to my readers. I set them up so that they can read the books in any order. The other thing that I really, really hate, and it makes me stop reading an author are books that end with cliffhangers. Mm. Uh, I consider that blackmail. (laughs) I mean, that's the author saying, okay, you enjoyed my book. And now if you want to find out what happens to these people, you've got to buy the next one. Well, my Mm -hmm. reaction to that is scratch this author off my list to read. I Mm -hmm. love ending chapters with cliffhangers because those are fun for readers. And I mean, they keep us turning the pages. But I, I will not do that. I will not end a book with a cliffhanger. The story is resolved at that point. Right. Plus, when you're if you're waiting for the, the next book to 
come out and say it's a year until the next book in the series come out comes out, that's a long time to wait to uh, find out what happens next. I know. And I know some readers have told me that they will buy my books and other authors' books when they come out. But if it's a series, they won't read any of them until they have all of them so that they can kind of binge read. Right. One, two, and three right after each other. Yeah. Um, so you've written many books about Texas, and you mentioned that you love the Hill Country of Texas. Why is that? You live in Wyoming now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I've lived uh, a number of places. I, okay. I, spent, I spent my early childhood in a small town in Texas, not in the Hill Country. But uh, when I was promoting the first of my Texas Dreams series, and I was doing book signings all around Texas, one of the newspapers had an article and it said, you can take the gal out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of her. That was kind of the story. I mean, there are just so many things that I like about Texas. It's such a a varied state. The history is fascinating because, you know, it's gone through all of these different periods. I mean, it was its own nation for a while. Yeah. Um, and the hill country is just beautiful. I mean, I love the hills and the wildflowers. I mean, there's just nothing like being in the hill country in the spring. And you look out and you see these fields of blue bonnets that you you almost think it's a lake or the sea because there are just so many of them. It's it's a total blue carpet. It's just wow. Do I sound like the tourism bureau? No, but you know what? I have been to Texas, but I I don't think I've been to the Hill Country. Um, but you make me think of it differently because I think of um, well. But see, I'm I'm from the Northeast, so I'm used to cold, which you are too now, I guess, in Wyoming. Um, and so I think of hot, <laughs> just like major heat. Um, I was there in the summertime one year. Um, but I do know, I did notice how different different parts of it are. And that's one of the things that makes it interesting. I have relatives who live in what's called the Piney Woods part of Texas. Mm. And as you might expect, there are a lot of evergreen trees. But yes, right. humidity are a definite uh, factor. Not quite as much in the hill country okay. as in the lower elevate. Well, not that it's all that high, but the um, you know, if you were in Houston or along the Gulf Coast, yeah, hot, humid. Right. Yeah. Um, so tell me about your research process. Obviously, you have background, you know what Texas is like, but what other kinds of research have you had to do to write about the 19th century? reading lots and lots of books. Uh, I'm really fortunate because Cheyenne is the capital and we have a really good library here, uh, the county library. So I'm able to get a lot of research materials from the library, which is good. Um, my advice for writers who are trying to do research and want to know where to start is to start in the children's section of the library. Hmm. If, for example, you want to write a book about the 19th century, you find a children's book about what was happening then. And the reason for that is that it's short, 
But most importantly, it focuses on the key events of that era. Right. Instead of going to, you know, a typical 400-page tome that tells you every single detail of every single battle that was fought, you don't need that. So you go to the children's section to, to get this overview and then figure out, okay, now let's see, 19th century, that's 100 years. Wait, what part of that do I want to deal with? In this particular series, I chose the period right before the Civil War. Because to many people, that was considered the golden age in Texas. It was a state. It was pretty prosperous. Um, so I, I narrow it down to that. Now, once I know where the time frame is, then I start doing research about what was happening then, not just in politics, but in the world in general, and the interesting thing is, I have a book that I think is out of print now, but it's called Historic Costume for the Stage. And it has drawings of the clothing in various eras, which is incredibly valuable research because you can see, hey, what did people wear? And it describes the kinds of fabrics that they used and oh tells you when plaids were popular versus stripes. But one of the other things that it has is for each of these eras, it has at the beginning a list of what was happening in the world. And, you know, it'll have Europe, and I think it's broken down by different countries in Europe, but then it has the United States. And it'll tell you in politics who was president. It tells you what books were popular then, what was published. So you can see what are people reading it tells you what plays were popular then and gives you a real feel for what was happening. You know, in, and so you can fill in the details for ordinary people's lives by reading a book like that. Right. That sounds so valuable. Now, we're going to take a little different tech away from the book and, and your research process, but... I understand you used to be a director of information technology for a large company and you traveled a lot. Now, I'm trying to figure out how someone who wanted to become a journalist at first and then decided to do something in writing um, ended up with this kind of career. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, my goal of being a journalist went away pretty quickly, but then I decided that what I wanted to do was be a novelist. I wanted, because I love fiction. I mean, yes. there are many things I like about nonfiction, but if I could only read one thing, it would be fiction. Mm -hmm. So I decided I really wanted to be a novelist, but I also had this feeling that I couldn't earn a living doing that. So mm -hmm. when I went to college, I majored in French. French. Yeah. yeah. And my goal at that point was to be to get a PhD and teach French at the university level. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is at this point, I was graduating a semester early and planned to go to grad school the following September. But I needed a job in between to support myself. I was getting married and it was going to be partial support of us. 
So I applied for a lot of jobs in Philadelphia, which was where we were going to be living, and got a job as a computer programmer. Now, this is before, I'm dating myself, this is before there were degrees in information technology. I would not have known a computer if I stumbled over it. (laughs) They hired, at that point, they were hiring as programmers either language or music majors. Really? Which, yeah, which may sound strange, but it isn't. It makes a whole lot of sense because a language, any programming language, is just like learning French or German. There are right. rules, and it's like music. You know, you have to hit the right note or it sounds terrible. Yes. So I got a job as a computer programmer. My husband got drafted. Uh, <laughs> And by the time that I, so I continued writing, uh, continued working, the thing, and this is where I see the hand of God, if I had gone to grad school as I had planned, I would have gotten my PhD and gotten out at exactly the time that every university in the country was cutting back on its liberal arts program. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have had a job. I would have been overly qualified with this PhD, but what was I going to do? So I wound up in in information technology by happenstance. I don't think so. I mean, I think it was all part of the plan. And it right. wound up being a very good career. It was one of the few careers at the time that was open to women and where I won't say we were treated equally. We weren't. But mm-hmm. it was still, it wound up being a good career. And I stayed in it for a long time and then wrote as in my spare time. So I was a full-time IT professional and a part-time writer. I wrote, when I traveled, I wrote on airplanes, in hotels. <laughs> I found ideas for books in various places that I traveled, um, it wound up working out very, very well. Mm. But definitely a strange way to get to from an early childhood dream of being a writer to where I am now. Right. So tell us how your writing career, did it start while you were still at that job? Did you get published at that point or... Or was it after you retired from that job? Oh, no, I I was published then. I had this goal of selling my first book by my 30th birthday. And I had written a couple books, which will never, ever be published, but hadn't been terribly serious about it until it was like one month before my 29th birthday. Mm. And I said, you know, if you're going to sell this book by your 30th birthday, you need to get serious. And so... I did. My goal at the time had been to write romantic suspense, not like we see romantic suspense now, but like Victoria Holt and Phyllis Whitney. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, hmm. then I saw an ad for Harlequin romances, picked up a couple, had never read them before, and said, maybe I should start with just a romance and add the suspense later. So I did. I wrote just a straight contemporary romance, 
sent it off to Harlequin, came back with a rejection pretty quickly. And, you know, it was one of those totally unhelpful rejections, the form Mm. letter that tells you nothing. You don't know if this is the worst prose in the English language or if the editor bought something similar the day before. Right. So I said, okay. After I recovered from that, and it was pretty Mm -hmm. depressing, I said, you know, if it was good enough to send to Harlequin, it's good enough to send to someone else. So I sent it to a second publisher. One week before my 30th birthday, the editor said, love the story. I want to buy it. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So So, you did did what you set out to do. When it was published, the people at my job said, are you going to quit your job now? And I laughed. I went, you know, have you heard the term for love or money? Well, (laughs) the job, the day job is the money part. The writing is for the love of it. And so from then on, I have been writing. I wrote for the secular market for quite a while. And Mm -hmm. um, now I am absolutely delighted to have been able to take early retirement from my day job and to be a full-time writer of Christian fiction. Right. So I'm curious, when you were writing for the secular market, were you a Christian at that time? Yes. And the... The interesting part of it is that I would have people say to me, you know, you really ought to write for, you ought to write inspirational romances. And I said, they're too preachy. (sighs) And, you know, they have sermons in them and all that. The really funny part of that is that my first book for the Christian market, Paper Roses, one of the key scenes in there is a minister's sermon. So here wow. I was person saying they're too preachy. <laughs> right. Um, I really, one of the greatest compliments that I have received from reviewers is that they say my, my style is not preachy. Mm-hmm. I do have ministers and sermons in many of the books, and that's because we're dealing with the 19th century. Right. The church was a central part of the town and of people's lives. And just as Harriet Beecher Stowe influenced people with her writing, the ministers were extremely influential with their congregations. I mean, people listened to them and what they said mattered. Mm-hmm. And so it's very realistic to be writing a 19th century book and have people thinking about what did the minister say? I mean, what did his sermon say to me? What can I learn from it? Yes. So how many books have you written? What number is Dreams Rekindled? Uh, 38. Wow. See, this is the thing I, I had seen that you retired from your other career to become a writer. And then I saw your website with all those books listed and I didn't count them obviously, but I just thought how either you're much older than you look in your photo or you were writing before you retired. So it's the latter. (laughs) So what are you writing now? Can you tell us about that? Uh, Well, I've finished the third book in the Mesquite Springs trilogy and I'm waiting for the first of the two edits that comes on that. 
Mm-hmm. And I am starting, I'm about a third through the first draft of the first book in a new trilogy. Do I have enough wow. numbers there? <laughs> That's okay. Um, the The trilogy that comes after Mesquite Springs is tentatively called Sweetwater Crossing because that's the name of the town. No surprise, it's in the Texas Hill Country. But these books take place in the 1880s rather than the 1856, 1857 timeframe that I used for Mesquite Springs. Right. And I'm very excited about all of those, you know, the third book in the Mesquite Springs book series and then the Sweetwater ones. Right. Great. So here's a question that I ask all of my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Well, I'm not sure who said it, but you know, it's if we don't understand history, we're doomed to repeat it. Right. I think, um, I think one of the things that makes historical fiction so appealing to readers is that it we're distanced from the time frame so we can learn what happened to people then we can see the political events of that era from the perspective of 100 and 125 years later but we can also see that people essentially are the same, whether we live in the 19th century or the 21st century. Underneath everything, we are the same people. And so what I love about historical fiction is the opportunity to learn little things about what life was like then, um, you know, we, we've studied history in school. We know the big things. Okay, there was a civil war. But how did that impact people? Right. What, what were their lives like? Um, I mean, I'm very glad that I don't live in an era without indoor plumbing, without microwaves. But there are things that are appealing about the 19th century, the yes. close-knit communities the shared values that we don't necessarily see now. And so I think, I think there are many reasons why people read and enjoy historical fiction. Yes. Did so true. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, and, but that reminds me actually of when you were talking about your job and that women were not treated equally in the job that you had for many years. Um, did does that help you relate to your characters like your female characters in the 19th century do you feel like you use that experience in your writing absolutely um i think as writers and and i'm sure you're going to agree with this that we bring our own pasts into our stories and that things that we have experienced get put into books in one way or another. Well, I mean, our books are part of us. Yes. And my characters are not me. They are not based on real people. But I would be lying if I said that certain experiences (laughs) have not impacted me and the way that I look at people and the way that I describe my characters. I mean, I 
I could not write. I could not have a hero or heroine who wasn't a basically decent person because I don't want to spend the amount of time that it takes to write a book with people who are not decent, likable people. I mean, I have villains in my story and they're kind of fun to write, but they have to be more than balanced by the good characters. Yes. Yeah, I found, I find it almost impossible. I mean, yeah, I find it impossible to not put my own experiences into my writing. I don't think any writer could really write a good book without writing them a lot of themselves into it, you know. Well, there was, um, I don't know if you've ever read Dorothy Sayers' Mysteries. They're I haven't. Early, they're set in the early 19th century. And right. she was one who had a career outside of writing. She worked for an advertising agency for a while. Mm. And it was a truly horrible experience for her. She hated it. So she got her revenge. She wrote a book called Murder Must Advertise and pointed <laughs> out how, I mean, she had people dying in this advertising agency. Wow. That's a creative idea. <laughs> so, Amanda, it was wonderful talking with you. Tell us how listeners can purchase your new book. I think this episode will be releasing close to your release date. So, basically, any place you buy books, you can find Dreams Rekindled. Great. And what's the best way to follow you online? Uh, go to my website, which is real simple, www.amandacabot.com. That's got all of my links to Facebook, Twitter, my blog, all of that stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, friends, at the end there, um, Amanda's mic had some background noise, so I had to kind of cut off quickly. But I hope you enjoyed hearing from Amanda, and I hope you check out her book, Dreams Rekindled. I do want to remind you of the things I always remind you of. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, please leave a review and a rating. And also, if you're interested in the show notes, I always have links to the book so you can find them easily. And that they're actually affiliate links, which gives me a little bit of a kickback so that that helps support the show because I don't get paid to do this yet. We'll see, maybe someday, but there are costs involved. So my friends, visit the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog, alisontreat.com slash B-L-O-G, Allison's with one L, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. And I just want to leave you with a quote from Oscar Wilde. One day I'm going to repeat these quotes because I'm going to forget all the ones that I've done before, or not all of them, but I'm sure that I will forget that I already used a quote and accidentally repeat one. But here's a new one, I think, from Oscar Wilde. Anybody can make history. Only a great man, or woman, I might add, can write it. So keep reading historical fiction and have a great week.